Welcome to From Lab to Life, a podcast series celebrating 20 years of Belbury. I'm Alison Rogers. In this episode, Behind Closed Doors, we learn how a Belbury Human Research Ethics Committee works, who goes on them and why. You're about to meet four members from different committees or HRECs, two chairs, a deputy chair who's also a scientific advisor, and a community representative. Let's say hello. Hello, I'm Andrew McLaughlin. I'm a professor of pharmacy here at the University of Sydney in the Sydney Pharmacy School. I'm also the head of school and dean. On the Belbury HREC, I've been lucky enough to be a member for a few years now with expertise around clinical pharmacology. And more recently, I was appointed to deputy chair. My name's Annette, Annette Brownack-Mayer. I am the chair of Committee F for Belbury. That's my part-time enjoyment activity. I'm a bioethicist by training. I've spent most of my working life in public health. My substantive position is as the head of the School of Health and Society here at the University of Wollongong. My name's Sue Pittman and my role on the committee is community representative. I was a senior public servant in Canberra in a couple of different departments I'd helped to prepare legislation and supported ministers putting legislation through Parliament, and I'd been the member of executive uh, management teams for many years as well. I'm Michael James. I have a PhD from Adelaide University, and I've had a career in medical research, both in the US and in Adelaide, with the last 30 years of that career being spent in the rheumatology unit at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And I was chair of the Royal Adelaide Hospital's Research Ethics Committee for 14 years. And I've been chair of a Bilbury Research Ethics Committee for another 14 years. It's not my day job. It's not the day job of any of the committee members. But it gets under your skin. These sound like busy people with not a lot of spare time. Andrew's been involved with ethics committees for almost 20 years. Why? First of all, I was involved with the Ethics Committee at the hospital where I worked, and then I was lucky enough to have a role as the chair of that Ethics Committee. And what I loved about that is that uh, it's a front row seat to innovations in your area of practice, but also many areas of practice. And I soon figured out that not only did I really enjoy it, but I really enjoyed working with an appropriately constituted Human Research Ethics Committee. And the beauty of that is it's not just scientists, you know, sitting around talking, it's people from across the community in many ways talking about important research. Research also has become, in the modern era, a new modality for treatment. And I say that by making the point that new medicines and treatments are tested uh, with the appropriate oversight of a clinical trial, and they offer very credible treatment for people who often have no other options. I have a front row seat to nationally, internationally important research uh, and innovation that's happening all the time. For Sue, a friend thought she should get involved once she'd retired. I really needed something to keep my brain working. So she suggested that I put my name down with Belberry. She'd been the manager of animal research ethics committees at two universities in Sydney. So she knew everything about the subject and I knew absolutely nothing and was about to embark on a real adventure. And it's uh, certainly been a learning curve. Annette just loves learning new things. 
it's just endlessly fascinating to look at all these things that happen and think, oh, gee, have never thought you could do that or that's an interesting way to tackle that problem. And I am equally fascinated by how committee members approach thinking about these kinds of things. I've always been really interested in how ordinary people solve moral problems, how people think about the the intangibles in life and what's important. And an ethics committee is a, a working example of how that happens in a very clear and explicit way, and I really enjoy that. We're part of something that really does make a significant difference to many people's lives. So in terms of better health outcomes, better quality of life. I like, I like the sense that I'm part of that. In Sue's career, the work often never ended. Yeah, they were boundless. <laughs> um, the work was never ending. And so for me, it's been the joy of, of having a discrete task with a beginning and end and a mental challenge in the middle and a learning curve because I've learnt a lot about so many things that... I feel as though I've had a free education. I couldn't buy this education in the subject matter and I wouldn't have met the people I've met without it. So I've also got a much better insight into how a lot of the, the particularly the health system uh, in South Australia works uh, by being in rooms with people with this sort of knowledge and when people ask, what do you do in your retirement? I'm telling them I'm doing something that's benefiting other people. But what exactly is a human research ethics committee? Michael explains. There's a role that's specified by the regulators of human research in Australia. For a start, one is the drug regulator, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. The other is the National Health and Medical Research Council. So they say that Every human research project, no matter what it is, if it's a questionnaire or a first-in-human drug, has to be approved by a human research ethics committee. That's a requirement that doesn't come from us. It comes from regulators. So then what is it? It's a mixture of people with expertise in the scientific area that's under investigation, along with people who are non-expert, who are there to reflect community concerns, legal concerns, and there has to be, in the end, congruence, agreement amongst that very, very different bunch of people. If we say yes, then the research can go ahead. If we say absolutely not, it's rejected, it won't go ahead. Each Human Research Ethics Committee meeting has two community representatives, a pastoral care member and one lawyer member in addition to the chair and at least three scientific members. The minimum quorum required for each meeting is eight. However, normally, Belbury has more than this. The work is very much enriched by the different perspectives that people bring and have. That's not only the clinicians and the other scientists, but of course, lawyers, uh, ministers of religion or significant people in the community. And, you know, we often say just the lay people, but the members of the community that hold scientists and investigators to account with the language they use, how they express things, how they value putting the individual. Remember, this is about participants and how we can support them in this process. Michael gives us some insights into what a committee chair does. It's a bit of directing the traffic in terms of the discussion. 
For myself, because the letters go out with my signature on them, I have to be satisfied that it's had a good review. Belbury goes to great lengths to make sure we have the right technical, clinical expertise. They will pull a specialist from anywhere in Australia. But the remainder of the committee, they see things from a different viewpoint. And it's uh, really quite wonderful. All the chairs have a meeting together once every three months. That's facilitated by Belbury. I think that feeling of making sure that your committee, that you're chairing, has had a say, that everybody is satisfied. They haven't felt restrained in expressing an opinion. For Sue, as a community representative, it's all about the trial participant. There's the question of justice. People are in a position often where they're vulnerable when a trial human research is presented to them as something they should consider. And so I'm there to make sure that the risks and the burdens that they might be signing up to are in balance with the possible benefits that might come from that area of study or research. might not be for them, it might be for others. It's their welfare at the end, the welfare of people who are prepared to be involved in quite often cutting-edge research, really, and sometimes research from which they can't withdraw, in effect, once they're in it and had a a treatment or a, a device implanted that's not something that they can easily withdraw from. And they will have to uh, deal with the consequences with all the support that medicine can give them, of course. Michael is clear. There's one thing a community representative can't be. We'll have community reps that are retired teachers who might be retired accountants. What they can't be is retired scientists. So they really should not have been involved in medical research and human research ever. It's quite hard to think of yourself as a patient participant. But just take one step removed. I think is often very helpful for people when they move back one step and saying, well, I'm okay with this for myself, but would I want my mum to go into it? I wonder if you're a community representative, you have to have the courage sometimes to ask what may appear to be a bit of a dumb question. The obvious gap between my level of knowledge and any of the experts in the room is so great that I've learnt to accept. I will stumble in, I'll I'll say or ask dumb things, and they're very patient. I've been absolutely amazed how patient people are and how determined they are to make sure that a person like me understands as well as I can what they're discussing. Annette says her role is to ensure that the information is presented in a way so that those without a medical or science background can understand it. And also to ensure that if there are questions, that people have an opportunity to ask them. Many ethics committees will also provide upskilling and training for committee members, and sometimes that can be most important for community members. And it's one of the delights of being part of an ethics committee that you get to be involved learning about things you don't know very much about. The other thing that I would say is I think we often assume that it's the community members who have a hard time understanding things. Our other members can have just as much of a hard time 
when the expertise that is needed and it's needed at every single meeting and every single study is what does this look like from the perspective of an ordinary or everyday participant taking part in research? And that's where those of our membership who do not have medical or clinical or scientific qualifications are absolutely essential because they're needed then to explain what it looks like from their perspective, to interrogate the language that isn't clear. As a technical expert, Andrew works across all the committees. This is what's involved for him. As a a member of uh, the Belbury family of experts, you've been engaged and trained, you've been given an orientation to the system and you're aware of how Belbury operates, you're required to do some training. So a particular meeting starts when you get a, a text message from the Belbury team saying, are you free for a, an HREC? They usually give you two weekends to prepare, so the, the notes will arrive. Then you'll get a prompt through the system to your email saying you've been allocated to this meeting and there's five items, for example, and you have been nominated as the primary spokesperson on this item and also secondary spokesperson on these two. You'll see an agenda at that time as well. That's a very important time for you to review any potential conflicts of interest and you declare those to the chair. At that same time, within the e-protocol system, those applications now appear under your uh, name and you're able to go to those papers, click on the, on the links and follow them through to access all the details of that application set out in a manner which really facilitates the review, highlighting those things that we should look at and also then uh, the documents themselves. And for me, as the, a scientific contributor, I'm particularly looking at the protocol. That's the recipe for doing that research. If it's a new uh, medicine, then there'll be what's called an investigator brochure, which is everything that's known about that medicine or that uh, therapy, that device up until this moment. And then the participant information sheet. So how would you explain this to participants? Uh, you complete that template and any outstanding questions get put into the Belbury e-protocol system. And we're really encouraged to link any of our comments to the national statement. So the national statement outlines what's required in an application. So you might indicate it's this particular section of the national statement. We need some more information about the possible harmful effects of this medicine. I don't believe they're adequately described according to what's in the protocol, for example. I'm looking at fundamental aspects of, is this a plausible pharmacological approach? Is there enough evidence to say, from the pre-clinical information, maybe from animal or cell studies, that the dose they've chosen is appropriate for the first in humans. So part of what a committee is doing is bringing all that expertise. I know my job is to think a bit more pharmacologically, but I'm also thinking more generally if I was a participant. So when the, the meeting's on, all conflicts are managed by people moving in and out of that meeting. The chair opens up, usually acknowledging the country that we're on. Uh, we then start to talk about a Belbury update any other outstanding items before we hand over to the presenter for the first item. I will uh, give a a short presentation to orientate people to this study, what it's about, who it's studying, you know, what what are the novel aspects to it, what I think the strengths are and some of the areas that we need to work on. I might particularly focus on what we know about the safety uh, of this medicine and and any any risks have they been appropriately described and basically provide an overview. The secondary spokesperson will do that as well. There'll be any other comments to clarify from the panel members, and then we'll go to each of the points that have been identified. So the first point, comment, Andrew, what is your comment? Why is that important? 
okay, let's accept that. At the end of that item, uh, we then have to uh, give it a, a recommendation. So we talk about the level of risk that might be involved, whether the decision is to approve or further information is needed. And if further information, who would review it? Does it come back to the committee? That's pretty rare. But would it come back just to the reviewers for approval out of session? Uh, and just to jump ahead, sometime later, I'll get a message through eProtocol that those investigators have now come back. I'll log into the system out of the, the context of the meeting uh, and make any approvals there. So a meeting then runs through those five to six items in exactly the same way. And then the next day we get a consolidated summary of all those. And that usually means that the secretariat, uh, who are fantastic at, at organising this, bring a lot of experience, and the chair have read through the comments to make sure they're appropriately worded and they're good to go. Everyone gets a copy of them. But surely there must be disagreements within the committees. Annette? Almost every time we consider a study in the years that I've chaired ethics committees, we will reach a decision that we all agree on. There will be a bit of nuance around the edges. We are, I think, aiming for consensus. That's the intent. We work quite hard to listen to each other, to accommodate the views of different members of the committee. I think members of ethics committees take very seriously you are there to serve the interests of the participants of the research and to foreground the likely concerns that they would have and to ensure that their well-being is maintained. So the emphasis is not on what do I think, it's on what is going to be best and be most respectful for participants in this research and uphold high standards of research excellence. Some members have had experience in the institutional or public human research ethics committees. So for Andrew and Michael, how does the Belbury committee system compare? If I think about what a hospital does and the resources it has, basically it's volunteerism. And what I struggled with all the time when I was at the hospital is to get the right people to review an application. You know, if it required expertise of an immunologist or of a clinical pharmacologist, then I would be that person trying to encourage, cajole or voluntold those people to actually get involved, pleading with them. Whereas Belbury has nicely set up that expertise and because they can have meetings after hours, they can remunerate people appropriately, people do make it a priority. And that, of course, then opportunity as well for developing their members through training, through other support that Belbury does in investing in their members and also the broader research community means that they've really set up a highly efficient pool of expertise to provide timely and expert reviews according to the highest standard, I think, internationally. You come to Belbury and um, although people are paid, it's called a cost recovery, even though we get some reimbursement. Nobody's doing it for the money. However, um, with that money, Belbury puts it into providing this wonderful framework that allows us to just do our job on the ethics committees, whereas uh, in the public system, I had to do everything. Belbury provides the framework. You can just get on with your job. And once I saw that, I thought, yeah, this is, uh, this is a sustainable way for ethics committees into the future. Depending on a member's role, it can take between one to two days to prepare for a meeting, though they are given some payment. Members like myself and, and others 
are appropriately remunerated for your time. And I think the important bit about paying members means that you can and should make it a priority because you're being remunerated to do that. It's respectful of your time and it certainly does help you focus on meeting that deadline, which I think is an important part of it. On the money, Belbury charges a fee for the provision of Human Research Ethics Committee services. Could this compromise the considerations of the committee? Not according to Andrew. Alison, in fact, I probably held a similar view when I was at a hospital and I thought, you're paying, you get an answer. Now, what I do know is that every recommendation from Belbury for approval or endorsement for ethics is always based on evidence. It's based on the national statement. And what Belbury can offer that many other ethics committees cannot is the expertise they draw from, that pool of people. And that means that they do set and meet a very, very high standard. And of course, they do it in a timely manner, which other organisations can't and don't. And I guess the other point to make is that the fee is charged regardless of the finding of the committee. Absolutely. They don't get to choose which committee. They don't certainly get to choose the result either. Sue says, if you're thinking of becoming a community representative... I guess Belberry's looking for people who represent the, the community. Andrew says flexibility is key. The beauty of the, the way in which members are engaged is that you can choose how frequently you're involved. I mean, obviously, your expertise will determine what the Belbury committees need each week. The workload issue is for you to manage and, and your availability. Annette says everyone has something to offer. Whatever the skill set that you bring to bear, it's going to be valued and it's really important. You've got a contribution to make. Michael says the difference that Belbury has made in the human research landscape in Australia is enormous. I think the difference in the human research landscape in Australia before and after Bilbury is black and white. Before Bilbury, all human research was done in public institutions, either universities or public hospitals, because they were the only places that had research ethics committees. They did not exist in the private sector. So it's hard to imagine now, but Cancer studies could not be done outside of a public hospital because they had no ethics committee. And uh, Belbury grew out of an ethics committee at Ashford, been taken over under new ownership and said, we're not running ethics committees, we're treating patients. And Belbury started providing an ethics committee for researchers in the private sector. It's grown and grown and it has set a benchmark for ethics committees all over Australia. And the feedback that I get from researchers in private practice, from clinicians in private practice, is that they could not exist without Bilbury. I know from government organisations that Bilbury has set a standard that they would like the public system to emulate, but that's difficult in the public system because they're not provided with the same framework, support that we have. So it's hard to imagine that clinical trials not being able to be done in private hospitals or private cancer centres. Bilbury has made that possible, which is um, quite extraordinary, really, when you think about it. Sue is impressed by the efficiency of the process that Bilbury's developed. Having listened to some members of institutional ethics committees, I can see that Bilbury are setting standards in a number of areas 
And that prompt turnaround must be one of them. The other one that strikes me is that because Bellberry is very careful not to overload each committee, that the thoroughness of the review and the expertise that Bellberry manages to bring to the table, independent of the, an institution, must be held in very high regard. For Annette, Bellbury delivers high-quality, robust human research ethics reviews in an effective and efficient way. The quality of the communication to the researchers is key. They get clear communication, which is well justified, drawing on high-quality scientific knowledge and broader community understandings that's brought to bear to support them to ensure that their research is going to be conducted ethically. The leadership that Bellbury can display with respect to where do we want to go in the future to ensure that the research that is conducted in this country is ethical and of a high quality. What kinds of support structures can we put around the research endeavour to ensure that that occurs? It's a really unique role that Bellbury has carved out as a vehicle for building research capacity with a really clear eye to the ethical appropriateness of that research capacity building. And that's incredibly important. I'm not suggesting that other approaches to building research capacity do not do that, but it's quite explicit in the way that Bellbury goes about doing its work. For Andrew, the focus is the ethics committees. So the ethics committee is where the action happens and applications are reviewed, discussions are had, decisions are made, recommendations for either improving or for conducting the research. But what Bellbury have been able to establish is much, much more than just the committee or committees. You know, around it is a secretariat of people who are really committed to high quality research, to working with members, to working with participants and also with sponsors. I'd also say that it's an organisation that sets and meets a very high standard and really adheres to strong values which are embedded in the broader principles of ethics. And I think that's very attractive from an organisation who's making a big difference in the sector. And I would say the Australian research landscape is enriched by having um, an organisation like Bellbury as an option for ethics but even by influencing the ethos of the whole scientific community. I think that has implications internationally as well to put Australia down uh, as a leader. Thanks for listening to From Lab to Life. I'm Alison Rogers, and thank you to our four committee members who took part in this podcast. Join us next time when we meet some medical researchers who are competing for a prestigious fellowship. This podcast was made possible by Bellbury.